Our objective for uh, these four classes is to put ourselves into the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ during the last week up until at least the point of his arrest. And we want to journey with our Lord as he interacts with two groups of people, particularly the rulers of the Jews, their sex and their society, as they united in a murderous hatred that led, of course, to his demise and his disciples. Those men who had journeyed with him all that time, but who still thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And what we'll see is our Lord's care and his compassion that abounded toward them. And we'll see that despite the snowballing animosity of the Jews and Christ's knowledge that it was leading to Golgotha, his focus was on the current and future needs of those men. We'll see first that his mind is on the joy set before him. It wasn't on the cross. It wasn't on the path to Golgotha. It was he was going to his father. And it was a great joy of his to consider what that would be like. I think we will see that. And he looks at things from his father's perspective. It comes out so many times. We will see it tonight. He's looking at things from his father's perspective. He mourns over the city, weeps over the city because he knows how God feels about it. He's, those scriptures about the city are just coming to life in his, in his uh, life and all around him. So his disciples, his care for them, his provision for them, that's the second thing we will see occupies his mind. And last of all, the nation and the Gentiles. Why the nation and the Gentiles? Because he was coming as the saviour of the world. He wasn't just the Messiah of Israel, but he came to save all men and we stand here today because of what he's done for us. Brother Phil's classes took us to our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There are just so many threads and stories that weave their way all the way through this. Um, I just want to just, just go over it a little bit. We don't perhaps need to turn it up. Hopefully you were there. Um, but just to connect some of those events, put some things in your mind that you're going to see coming up over the next few weeks that draw those connections between what happened in Bethany and all this time right through until the cross. The events in the hour of the house or in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany was one of the big things we remember Brother Phil finished the links too to Zacchaeus and the healing of the blind man and the rich young ruler who had everything and saw nothing. There's a woman, Mary. Her display of her love for her Lord who broke open that box of such valuable ointment that was a symbol of herself, of her innermost emotion, her innermost being, 
and pouring all of herself on her Lord in front of a room full of men. She poured it on his head and it ran down through his hair, his beard and down his garments and anointed his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. Just such a lavish display in the context of that room. But then there's Judas, Simon's son, which would betray him. Because he was a thief, remember that. He was a thief and he had the bag. So we can contrast there openly and publicly this woman who exposes herself and while she's doing that and the perfume fills the house, he is trying to shut her down in complete contrast to her. And there in that room is the only open condemnation of Judas in Scripture. Our Lord said, let her alone. Leave her alone. Against the day of my burying, she has done this. Me, you won't have always. And that's Christ's focus on his disciples and their need that's seen here and that we will be able to explore more. She has done what she could to anoint my body to the burying, the lingering fragments, fragments of spikenard in that hot climate was something that was going to last. And she demonstrates that love can change our priorities and our perspectives and that we can't overdo our love for our Lord. We need to take the opportunities and like her, do what we can at personal cost, even at risk of rejection. Rejection, rejection. That's another word we're going to see coming up repeatedly. Even perhaps you've seen it in the chapter we looked at tonight. And shame. That's another theme also that will be repeated. And we can choose to be like Mary and not like Judas. We can choose to love. It's a choice. We can close down like Judas was or we can open up. We can take the risk, a risk that might mean that we'll get hurt and love our brothers and sisters in the same way he loves us. And then there's his disciples. The lack of understanding even in that room of his disciples but Christ's patience with them despite that. You know, they had the same concerns of Judas about, you know, the value of this expensive ointment and what it could have been done for those in need. But that fragrance lingers still wherever the gospel is preached. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting point? And what are we learning about when we look at what happens right through Christ last week. It's about the gospel being preached everywhere. And we will see that uh, when we look at it. 
So what we'll also see is that those events in that room set Judas in motion. It tells us who he was. He was a thief. He was a thief. His fundamental nature. He might have potentially wrecked Mary's devotion. And that mild rebuke, perhaps, tipped him over the edge. He was thinking all about himself. John 12 Verse 5 and 6, Judas spoke very fine words. <coughs> what do I mean? Fine words about giving money to the poor. But John characterises the real situation in hindsight, of course. Not that he cared for the poor but that he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. The disciples came to realise what they were truly dealing with. Now, um, uh, I probably have to make some apologies. I know uh, Brother Kevin's had some severe flashbacks. You need to help him a bit. He thought this was uh, the Sydney Rail Network he was looking at. Um, but it's not. Uh, it it's, gives us an opportunity to think about some things in a different way. And it puts together the temporal things with the spatial things. What am I talking about? It puts together what happened in time with where it happened and who was there. And this is just uh, the, the things that I'm looking at. Um, this same uh, piece of work has been done uh, going quite a bit further. I've picked up uh, you know, this, this work from Bible Gateway, but then I have modified it to suit uh, the, the um, uh, harmony of the Gospels from Brother Perce Mansfield. So mostly I've used that, not because I'm really going to be spending a lot of time trying to piece everything together. We'll, you know, I'm not going to spend too much time trying to explain the why this happens and then that happens. But what I would like you to just reflect on is how this brings together different groups of people in the Lord's last week. And um, for those that are interested, you know, maybe in the newsletter, I'll put the uh, PDF for the whole thing that goes right out until uh, the resurrection and beyond. And it's even more interesting there. So if you get used to uh, using the underground this way, then, you know, you can get into the serious, like the Shanghai network, which, which is a bit more sophisticated than in Sydney. But no disrespect to the Sydneyites. Anyway, Brother Kevin's going to join us soon, I think, so he's, he doesn't need to worry about it. So um, perhaps you get the feeling each line represents a person or a group of people. And when those lines come together, it means they're together. And there's uh, some places mentioned there, like Bethany at the top, and there's uh, you know, a little grey section across the top, and there's the temple. So there's the things that happen in the temple. And so what you can immediately see is something I think Brother Phil had spoken of, that our Lord is going daily, backwards and forwards, between Jerusalem and Bethany. Bethany, the house of comfort, where he's going back for relief 
from what happens in Jerusalem. But what we also see is the escalation of his involvement with uh, the, the uh, Jewish leaders. So you can see the Jewish leaders in the bottom section there. Um, and you can see that he goes away from them and he comes back. But each time you can see that what's happening is actually escalating. There's the cleansing of the temple. Uh, they, they respond with this, this murderous hatred. Uh, there's the temple debates. But you can see a bit of the focus here of this period that we're looking at tonight, which is uh, the section uh, up until um, essentially the temple debates. But you can see that this section is largely about uh, Christ dealing with the nation and uh, the things that flow from that. So um, Brother Phil had, had uh, taken us to uh, Psalm 8. Um, that, um, those words that are quoted in uh, the Mark record, Mark 11 verse 6, in his triumphal entrance, uh, sorry, um, Matthew 21, verse 16, I think, yeah. It, those tri his, his words on the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem and his uh, interaction with the priests. And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read, out of the mouths of babes, babes and sucklings, hast thou perfected praise. So here he was, being called the son of David, reflecting on David's song of victory over Goliath. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. And here are the, his disciples, the twelve, They've gone out, you can sort of uh, see it here, is triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They've gone out and they've gone back to Bethany. And then, after a night in Bethany, of which we know nothing in particular, he's returning with his disciples into Jerusalem. But think how his disciples felt after that previous day. What had happened on that previous day? His triumphal entrance, the son of David, Hosanna, praise the Lord for this, you know, wondrous king. What are they thinking? He's frittered it away. All that momentum and that enthusiasm, it's leaked away. There was such a glorious occasion and great potential, but it's never realised. And here are the disciples shaking their head, deflated and demoralised. So, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 13 and 14... On the morrow, perhaps verse 12 first, on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, so that connection, he was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found it had nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you forever. And his disciples heard him say it. Now this distraction, this distraction from his triumphal entry, now he's distracted by this fig tree. And we're going to see that fruit is the an overwhelming theme of this chapter that we're looking at here tonight or, or this part of, part of his life. Fig trees. There's always fruit and then leaves. But this fig tree, no one was going to ever eat fruit from it forever. It reminds us of Paul in Romans 11 verse 25 where he says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So when no one was gonna ever, going to eat fruit from this forever, it's really talking about the age. No one was going to eat fruit from this for the age, the Gentile age that was about to come. And then in verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. And back in uh, Matthew, perhaps just uh, reflecting on Christ's later words to them in chapter 23, and verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. This was a judgment. Just like them, though, there's one thing Christ expects of us you know even back in the sermon on the mount in chapter 17 7 and verse 17 he says even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit and perhaps there's lots of reasons to think that Jesus is thinking of his dear friend, John the Baptist. Matthew 3, verse 8. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones, remember that, to raise up children unto Abraham, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So I think Christ has in mind his dear friend John the Baptist 
and what happened to him. And he's reminding the Jews of the things that John the Baptist had taught. And we'll see later on as we've read that he brings John to their memory. Now, um, one little thing here um, that you'll see is that um, Matthew 21, verse 18 and 19, um, at least this is Brother Purse's view, it seems perfectly uh, sensible. But Matthew 21, verse 18 and 19 needs uh, a little bit of thinking about. It's a little bit out of place. Because when you get to the uh, last words of verse 19, where the incident we've just looked at, the cursing of the fig tree happens, uh, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever and then full stop, there is actually uh, the, an overnight stay in Bethany and, uh, and another arrival at no doubt the same fig tree uh, on his way to Jerusalem that fits between that full stop and the word and presently the fig tree withered away. So Mark chapter 11 and verse 12 and 16 fit in there and uh, that's, what, that's what's shown, uh, shown here. So, after the cursing of the fig tree, he began to cast out them that bought and sold. Nothing had changed in the three and a half years since he had previously cleansed the temple. They were still ripping off the poor people. And what did he say it was? It's a den of thieves. And birds of a feather get together and Judas was getting together with his fellow thieves. And as he was coming into Jerusalem, Christ had probably been able to see on the hills outside of Jerusalem the dovecotes of the sons of Annas where they would breed the doves that they would then sell to the poor. He might have passed the places where they kept lambs for Passover. Not any lambs, your best lamb. And the inspectors that the Jews had appointed to check if there were blemishes. So you buy one of ours, then you won't have a problem when you get to the temple. You know, it's a good deal, buy one of ours, and the blemishes on yours you won't need to worry about and you don't need to bring it all the way from your home. But Christ is saying this is supposed to be the house of God. And not just this is supposed to be the house of God, but this is in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. Well, think about the disciples. You know, Christ has already told them that he would be delivered to the Gentiles. No wonder there's consternation and confusion on their part. But there's an interesting uh, thought in Mark chapter 11 and verse 16. It's worth looking at. He would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. 
no doubt through the court of the Gentiles. Presumably, there was a lot of that going on. You know, vessels going backwards and forwards. And it brings to mind the words of Zechariah 14 and verse 21. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto Yahweh, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto Yahweh of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And of course, you know, these people were not sons of Abraham at all. They were essentially Canaanites. They were there to make money and that was uh, what their principal uh, activities were. They didn't want the court of the Gentiles for the Gentiles. They needed it for their own activities. And then we find that the priests renewed their murderous hatred of him. And while we're in Mark, and perhaps I'm jumping back, backwards and forwards too much, you'll probably do a bit of that. Uh, Mark 11 and verse 18, the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. They feared him because of the people respecting the things that he taught. So rather than this blessing out of the house of the Lord that had been promised, for instance, in Psalm 118, instead they are fearful of, uh, of the Lord and uh, astonished at his doctrine. And then in verse 19, when even was come, he went out of the city. So you can see him going out of the city and back um, down, no doubt, but up on our little uh, diagram uh, to Bethany. And um, in chapter 21 and verse 17, uh, which is referred there in the small lettering at the top, it says, he left them, meaning the, uh, the Jews, and went out of the city into Bethany and lodged there so he's gone back to the house of comfort uh, to get away from the uh, murderous hatred of the Jews and again the next morning as they went along uh, in uh, verse 20 the disciples say how soon is the fig tree withered away. And Peter remembered that it had been said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It had withered from the roots. Just hold your hand there and come to Romans 11 again and uh, remind ourselves of verse 19. Sorry, verse 9. 9 or 19? 
uh, sorry, um, verse, verse 16 and 17. If the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. If the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. So it has relevance to us. It's about our roots. They had lost all connection with their roots. And that's exactly uh, the connection that our Lord makes uh, when he talks to his disciples about this situation. He says in uh, verse, uh, I think in, in the Mark record, Mark, um, Mark 11 and verse 22, he answers uh, their query about the, or Peter's query about the fig tree that had withered and says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And therefore, I tell you, whatsoever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Have faith in God. What faith is that? Well, that's the faith of Abraham. And this mountain. So perhaps uh, Genesis 15 and verse 6, uh, a reminder, what, uh, what faith in God was he talking about? The Jews should have been able to remember this. He believed in Yahweh. He had faith in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. And when Jesus said had faith in God, they would have made that connection to their father, Abraham. And then in Isaiah 56 and verse 7, the connection to the mountain that he talks about. If anyone says to this mountain, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. It wasn't about mountains that our Lord was talking. It was about Gentiles being accepted into the faith of Abraham, considering perhaps the faith of Abraham leading his only son, to Mount Moriah, this mountain, perhaps the mountain in front of him. The very journey that Jesus was now taking, decidedly with his father. And he's reflecting on, I think, the pain of Abraham in doing that with his son, and the pain that his father was now feeling as his son was being led to sacrifice. 
And uh, I think there's another couple of connections that suggest that that might be what he's thinking about. Come to John 14 um, and verse 1, you know, similar sort of themes. Um, We'll be looking at this in more detail later. But let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe, you have faith in God, have faith also in me. Believe in me. And then in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me and the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. I'm going to my Father. That's Jesus' overwhelming thought. He's going to his Father. And perhaps we reflect on uh, James, James the Lord's brother in James 2 and verse 20, where he says, Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead or useless? Was not our father Abraham justified by works? Was not he counted righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And of course, he was called the friend of God. You see, that person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. I think that's where Christ's mind was. He was going to his father. But he's also considering those that would have the faith of Abraham and the work that he would accomplish uh, for all sinners. And in verse 25 of Mark 11, he continues, And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And you might think, well, what's that doing there? He's talking about a fig tree withering up and he's talking about having faith in God and moving mountains and here he is talking about a a prayer I think the point is that the petty way in which we as sinners can assume that we have a strong relationship with God needs attention if we, if we think we've got a strong relationship with God, but we won't forgive the comparatively minor offences committed unto us, then we need to be looking closely at ourselves. He's comparing a dead fig tree with spiritually dead Jewish traditions performed in the temple. And the temple system that was corrupt like that tree, you know, rotten from the roots up, it no longer produces fruit 
And so it must be done away with. And if we think that we deserve something, that some sort of rigid adherence to feasts and sacrifices and ceremony and coming to meetings and whatever it might be can be replaced by a willingness to forgive others, then we've missed the point of Christ's teaching. And the next day, he comes to Jerusalem again. And here's the same rulers that feared him, but they're not ready to approach him on that day. They wait until the next morning. And they bring up this question that uh, Brother Aaron read so well for us in uh, Matthew 21, in verse 23 to 27. This question of authority, the authority, what authority do you do these things? Or, you know, by what authority did you do what you did yesterday to clear out this court of the temple and then, uh, you know, heal, heal these sick people? And he says, he draws them back to John's baptism. The baptism of John, where did that come from? And... You know, now he's thinking about fruit. It's John who said about fruits meet for repentance. And here they are questioning Jesus' authority. Who is this that comes into Jerusalem and receives the praises of the masses and drives the money changers out of the temple? And uh, you might think that the stage is set for a showdown. But our Lord gives three parables of warnings to the Jews. And this is the temple debates that are summarised by, you know, those three quotes there. Um, but it, you know, deserves a bit, of, uh, a bit of thinking about. So we had them read for us, the two sons, uh, the husbandmen, or, you know, the tenants, um, and the marriage feast. And each of these parables is told to the Jewish religious leaders, and each of these parables illustrates their rejection of Jesus. Rejection of Jesus. Remember that word. Each pronounces judgment on Israel for their rejection of their Messiah. So the first one in Matthew 21 uh, is in verse 28 to 32. And that is the, the parable of the two rebellious sons. He's looking for fruit from his sons working in his vineyard. Fruit. This is the theme of Christ's teaching here. In verse 31 he says, Which of them did the will of his father? The will of his father. That's what Christ got in his mind. The will of his father. You know, is Christ doing the will of his father? That's all he cares about. And when he looks at the nation and sees that in no way are they doing the will of his father, that's where his motivation for giving this parable comes from. And he says, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. And there's the connection to what had happened before. The publicans like Zacchaeus and the harlots. in the Zacchaeus was where? In Jericho the place of uh, Rahab's birth, or where, where Rahab lived, I should say. 
And here we have the prostitutes and tax collectors that would enter the kingdom ahead of the Jews. We know the parable of the two sons. The leaders of Israel are the second son. They claimed obedience, but they didn't do the will of their father. And Christ is thinking about this father-son relationship. And he's thinking about the respect sons should have for their fathers. If we're sons of God, then the lesson of Christ's teaching is the same for us. We need to respect our role as sons of God. And then in verse 33 to 46 is the parable of the household, of the husbandman and the heir. And so many times in this parable, verse 34, verse uh, twice, verse 41, verse 44, what's it about? It's about fruits. Fruit and fruits. It's about a vineyard. And they've killed the one beloved son. The beloved son. Christ is reflecting on the love of his father. As like Abraham took his son up to Moriah, here is Christ on that journey up to Moriah, reflecting on his father's love. He's thinking about what his father is going through. And their lack, Israel's lack of obedience to their father is made very personal for him. This is a parable that comes out of Isaiah 5. Uh, we haven't got much time. I'll just um, talk about it. Take a time to look at it in your own time. You know, it's augmented to reflect the power uh, or those in power at the time and oppression. We've got a landowner we've got who's God. We've got a vineyard who's Israel. We've got the tenants and the, the farmers, the, the Jewish religious leadership. We've got the landowner's servants, the prophets, first of all, who preached God's word to the people of Israel. We've got the son, Jesus. We've got other tenants that are brought in, the Gentiles. And it's all uh, very similar to Isaiah's parable of the vineyard. It would be prudent to look at it if we had the time. But Isaiah talks about a watchtower and a wall. He talks about the means of protecting the vineyard and the ripened grapes and the wine press that's for stamping out the juice of the grapes to make the wine. These are the things that the owner of the vineyard had invested in. And he was away at the time of harvest. He'd rented out his vineyard to tenants who were going to pay part of the fruit as their uh, rent. And he was putting in the minds of the Jews a question. How could they claim obedience as God's people and still reject his messengers? We don't know how many servants the owner sent. But that's not what's important. The theme is God's repeated appeal through so many of the prophets to an unrepentant people. 
And in verse 37 to 39, the situation gets even more critical. He sends his son, believing what? Believing that they will respect his son. They'll respect his son. It's about their respect for God, not really about their respect for Jesus. Their respect for God because he had sent his son. I came from the father and you can see in me the father. But they had no respect for him. They see an opportunity. They believe if they can kill him, then they will receive the inheritance. So what they did though, amounted to conspiracy to commit murder by the religious leaders. It's prophetic in the sense that Jesus is telling them what they were going to do to him. You know, come back to Psalm 118 and verse uh, 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Or Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste or shall not be ashamed or confounded as that's been variously expounded. And after Jesus' death, Peter would make similar charges against the religious establishment in Acts 4. They might have thought that after his death, the fight for the property was over, but it wasn't. The owner would appear on the scene. And so we come back to Matthew 21 and verse uh, 40. And 41, Jesus asked the question, what will the owner do to the evil tenants? And what he's doing is forcing them to declare their own miserable fate, essentially to condemn themselves for their blatant disobedience. It's a bit like David putting the question to, uh, Nathan putting the question to David. And up until this point, Jesus has been dealing with the immediate situation of Israel and what's happened in the past with their disobedience but now he leaves them with the question that relates to what they're going to do about Messiah the son of God who he says in verse 42 is the chief corner stone what are they going to do with him he's their foundation and he's the head of the structure their rejection, not their rejection of him, but their rejection of God's provision of his son. That's what he's thinking about from God's perspective. And Jesus made clear that this prophecy, that he would be rejected by the religious establishment and crucified, is exactly what was going to happen. And yet, of course, in verse 13, as much as they had taken him and slew him, we know he was to be resurrected. And this parable was a bit like pouring salt in a wound. You know, they're already challenging him over his 
authority and he's rubbing it in. Just in case they didn't understand, he gives a clearer picture of what they meant. Just think of Isaiah, note this down, we haven't probably got time to turn it up. Isaiah 3 verse 14 and 15. It is you, Yahweh enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It's you who has ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord Yahweh Almighty. And our Lord had in his mind the poor. And what they were doing in the court of the Gentiles was ripping off the poor. That was what was happening. And there's a theme about this that we're also going to see follow through. But of course that stone that they had rejected could also build and crush. And it was going to do both of those things. They were jealous and envious of Jesus' popularity with the common people. It was their authority and power to govern that he was encroaching on. And they had come to the realisation that Jesus is talking about them and their pride and their embarrassment was more than they could bear. They understood the analogy of the son. They knew Jesus was talking about himself. And it would be blasphemy to them in their view. And they were now seeking to kill Jesus. But you know, it's worth thinking about whether we are rejecting the stone or whether we are building on the stone. You know, we must be careful not to be in the same situation as the Jews. And over in uh, chapter 22 and verse 1 to 14, we'll finish on this, is the parable of the marriage feast. The wedding feast and the man without a garment. Many are called and few are chosen. The Pharisees, in verse 15, took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. That's the result of this. The wedding banquet, a joyous occasion in Jewish life, could last for up to a week. And in this parable, Jesus compares what? The kingdom of heaven to a wedding banquet the king's prepared who for? For his son. And what's Christ got in mind? The wedding banquet. We hope we'll be there. He wanted his disciples to be there. He wanted Israel to be there as well. But he could tell that many of those invited refused to come. Verse 4 and 5. They refused to come. In fact, verse 6, they spitefully entreated and slew his servants who'd brought the joyful message that there's this coming banquet. And the king is enraged at the response of those who had been invited and sent his armies to avenge the death of his servants. Christ's got in his mind just how God is viewing all of this. And he then sent invitations to who? 
anyone his servants could find. And with result, the wedding hall is filled in verse 8 to 19. And those who are ejected from the feast are outside in darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 12 and 13. And he ends the, the, the parable with the statement, for many are invited, but few are chosen, in verse 14. They would not come. It wasn't that they couldn't come, it's what, that they wouldn't come. They all had an excuse and how tragic is that? And how indicative of human nature to be offered this blessing from God, this invitation from God, and then to refuse that invitation because of the draw of such mundane, mun, mundane things. In verse 2, the man without a servant, the, sorry, the man without a garment, He says, friend. Perhaps he's thinking of Judas and what Judas was doing. The wedding invitation is extended to anyone and everyone. Total strangers, good and bad. Of course, we know it refers to our calling, the calling of the Gentiles. And... It foreshadows the Jews' rejection of the gospel that remember Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. Since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we turn to the Gentiles. But what's it about? It's about wedding clothes. We know what the wedding clothes are. Brides clothed in white. And it's Jesus teaching about the inadequacy of self-righteousness. From the very beginning, God has provided a covering for sin. So if we want to insist on our own covering, it's just filthy rags, to quote Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Of course, Adam and Eve found fig leaves to be woefully inadequate, and God made and they had handmade clothes replaced with the skins of the animals. But perhaps to finish off in Revelation 7 verse 9, the kingdom of heaven, what do we see? I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. The whiteness of our robes is due to being washed in the blood of the Lamb. We trust in God's righteousness and not our own. And Christ is reflecting all this time on their disrespect for their father. So perhaps um, I find uh, 
Sorry, I didn't use these slides. Got a bit carried away. A few questions. Are we giving of ourselves or are we thieves? Do we respect God and his patience and care for us? Are we desolate or are we bringing forth fruit in his vineyard? Are we rejecting the stone or are we building on the stone? Thanks.